0: What Should I Think About? is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful
1: thing we call the world.
0: Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About? podcast. I'm Celine.
1: And I'm Stephen. And today we're really happy to welcome Alexandra Stein, PhD. Uh, She's a a visiting research fellow at London South Bank University. She's also a former member of a political cult herself. Dr. Stein is a writer and educator who specializes in the social psychology of ideological extremism and other dangerous social relationships Um, and of course she researches and talks a lot about cults. So it's fantastic to have you here. Welcome Dr. Stein to the What Should I Think About podcast.
2: So thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm looking forward to chatting.
1: Fantastic. Um, so I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with you and your work, but perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your work and what you do in this area of ideological extremism, cults and coercion.
2: Well, um, you know, I got out of the political cult I was in about 30 years ago, over 30 years ago now, and I've I've studied all kinds of cults and worked with a lot of people from all kinds of cults, which has been fascinating. And what I I do a little bit of post-cult recovery counselling, not a lot, and I'm not a licensed therapist or anything, but just because there's such a a shortage of people who understand this topic, Mm -hmm. I've kind of wound up doing some of that. I work with the Family Survival Trust, which is a UK-based charity that specifically focuses on trying to um, do education, hopefully eventually some policy change and some support around issues um, of people who've been affected by cults. Um, I've written two books about cults um, and I do, yeah, quite a lot of education in various ways. I I did teach some courses. I'm not currently doing that. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, I'm a great believer in preventive education. Let's yeah. help people not have the experiences
1: we've all had. Sure. <laughs> so. Absolutely.
0: Just, uh, Did you want to talk a little bit about your experience background, um, just for the listeners that aren't, aren't aware, um, of just bri- briefly or as much as you want to uh, with the political call.
2: Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about that um as they say my life's an open book and i've actually written it open the book that you can open you Indeed. more gory details it's called inside out um, so when i was 26 um well going back a little before that i came from a politically aware and active family Um, from the kind of progressive left side of politics or whatever, or humanitarian side, whatever we call it these days. (laughs) Um, And specifically, I was born in South Africa and was from a very young age, from the age of about five, was aware of apartheid and the terrible segregation and oppression of of people of colour in South Africa. So, you know, I had a strong political background. Yeah. So that's kind of what I grew up wanting to engage in. And at the age of 26, I found myself in California having mostly a pretty interesting and good time, mm. um, enjoying the weather. <laughs> um, and I met someone who had interestingly had left this group and met two people actually who had left this, this group but sort of we would now say they were unrecovered, mm. or they were. What is it, Pimo? Physically were, and mentally. Oh, sorry, the other way around.
1: Yeah, Pimo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Physically,
2: mm. physically yeah. out, mentally
1: yeah.
2: in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a long story, but mm. through them, I got involved with this political cult that sort of didn't really have a name, okay. and it was underground. It was secret. But you know, as a young person, I'd grown up with images of Che Guevara and all these romantic, you know idealistic images and uh, hopes and uh, that a lot of young people have um anyway i got involved with it slowly it was quite a, a year or two before i was fully involved and then very quickly when i actually what kind of consolidated me in it was i was put into a relationship with someone in the group right. And that's, again, a long story. Mm-hmm. And it was with somebody I liked or, you know, I fancied, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that really, yeah, right, you know. But, again, that's really common in cults, mm-hmm. you know, especially in recruitment. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, other people were not so lucky and got put with people they didn't fancy. Mm. Um, anyway, I got involved. We were supposedly this social justice group. Um, and at the beginning, I felt very uncomfortable, like, there was a lot of weird stuff. Yeah, but I did not listen to my gut feelings. And they always had an answer when I raised questions about things.
1: Yeah.
2: And of course, the answers were usually that I wasn't working hard enough or Mm. trying hard enough or i wasn't developed enough to really understand these complex things and that worked on me Mm. um and also and though i did try to leave after about a year but by then i was already married to this guy Mm. and cared about him and so and i knew nobody i'd been moved from california to minneapolis where i then had to suffer many years of the minneapolis winters. I lost my good weather among many other losses. <laughs> <laughs> and um you know so to leave well I did try to leave and I was very very isolated I didn't I was thousands of miles from anyone else that I knew who wasn't in the group and I basically after 3 months went kind of crawling back and did a self criticism about what a bad person I was and then spent the next 9 years in this group.
1: Wow. Wow.
2: until uh you know long story again but I think you mentioned when S- Stephen when celine um came along that yes. was the kind of point where that helped you leave and similarly for me but then I had two children and we were starting to get criticized for letting our son have free play and huh. mm-hmm. that Set a little light bulb off in my head. Hmm. So there were some other things going on as well. But that was definitely one of the things where it's like, I don't want him to be controlled in the way I've been controlled and have kind of dull, boring, and exhausting life. Hmm. Hmm. And at about the same time, someone, one of the women who had kind of gotten me in had come back, one of the ones who'd been physically out but mentally, and she had returned to the group. We started secretly sort of talking to each other and sharing doubts. So then I had some support. Hmm. And then I could validate these what had been strong feelings of doubt but hadn't been allowed to surface. Sure, yeah. Once I had this one other person to say, yeah, there's something really wrong here, then I kind of almost immediately that we had that conversation, my brain kicked back in.
1: That's interesting
2: a question of planning well me and her and her husband spent three months planning our way out with a lot of fear Mm. trepidation and um yeah so did your
1: husband leave at the same time or did he stay in
2: no he did not and i i tried to approach him Mm. and he just was totally shut down Mm. in fact he kind of said to me which is i mean i laugh but it's sad really Mm he said, you're betraying the very basis of our relationship. Mm. And, you know, he was a nice guy. You know, he was yeah. not an evil, horrible person. He was just still mentally trapped. Yeah. Mm. But then after I got out, um, I sort of worked with his family. He had a very good supportive family, big extended family. And we got Steve Hassan. Uh, so this was 30-some years ago. <laughs> who coached myself and the family and my husband wouldn't really talk to me because as you know you know once you leave you're shunned and mm. there was custody issues and all kind of difficulties
1: sure.
2: but he was talking to his family and they got coached by steve
1: hassan oh, and
2: did the sort of softly softly
1: yeah
2: um and then a year later he got out good um it takes but, time. Like, we couldn't really, we couldn't really mend things between us, which yeah. again, i think is quite a frequent. Absolutely,
1: outcome. so many, uh, so many times that that happens. Yeah, you, you're really, it's kind of just in, in the balance, really, isn't it? Whether a relationship survives that mm-hmm. process. So yeah, I, I mm-hmm. completely get that. Um, Okay. That's really interesting. And I can see, I can hear some of um, the things in the, the latest book that you've written. I can hear some of that in there because you talk uh, quite a bit about some of those elements. And I really wanted to talk to you about this book. It's, it's the main, it's the, the the thing that got me thinking I really need to, to talk um, to you about the book because it's so great. I really enjoyed cool. reading it. The book's called um, Terror, Love and Brainwashing. Um, obviously with a... Um, an extra bit which is attachment in cults and totalitarian systems um it's a really interesting book um and you use attachment theory as a way to explain these psychological processes so we've we've actually talked about attachment theory here on this podcast but more in relation to child rearing so we've (laughs) talked a little bit about mary ainsworth and the strange situation all that sort of stuff and the secure base and all of that but um So I found it really interesting to see how you applied it to adult situations and cults. So um, I know it's quite a complex area, but I I know you've probably told this like a billion times, but would you be able to just sort of summarize some of the theory behind uh, your your ideas here?
2: I'll give it a try. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So in attachment theory, which John Bowlby originated, in this i think his first book about it was the 70s if i remember correctly mm-hmm. um the major work um he talked about how human beings and particularly children and babies have evolved this need for attachment which serves the purpose of protection yeah so the babies that were protected survived and the ones that weren't and didn't form a good attachment with mm-hmm. their, fa- their families didn't survive yeah. so it got selected in. So we know, and he said this was as important a human characteristic or, um, as hunger and thirst mm. and so forth. Mm. So um, so it's very, very basic. Um, and there's secure attachment, which I think you've probably talked about before, yeah. where the, the child is secure and the, the parent is going to look after them when they are require looking after but equally the parent will be flexible and let them go mm. when the child wants to explore their environment and then there's various not so good forms of attachment but that are good enough because sure. they're predictable this um, i i use the adult uh, language so mm. that would be um, dismissing um, and preoccupied attachment so one's kind of uh, people who are shut down and the other is people who tend to be clingy, and in, this is a very brief summary. Yes. <laughs> but, but they are predictable. Hmm. So, uh, you know, you may know someone who's um, a bit shut down, but you kind of know they're always shut down.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, but you can manage that in the same way, you know, you may have a friend who's clingy, but they can also give you stuff when they've, when their clinginess is satisfied, then they can be a good friend. And you just put up with it because you know that's what it's like. Yeah. The, the form of attachment that's very problematic and that we see overrepresented in prison and clinical samples is called disorganized attachment. Uh, also rela- uh, referred to as unresolved, so that refers to unresolved trauma or loss, right? Which is relevant to our
1: mm. population here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: and what that means is that the kind of attachment they've had with their their attachment figure, which normally is a parent or okay. a close loved one, but in my research, I'm looking at a group. Yeah, is unpredictable. So. Basically, it's a kind of in, in one attachment figure, this good cop and bad cop hmm. are combined. So you never know what's going to come at you. Yeah. And there's, there's very important effects to that. Um, let me see. Um, so what, But and it's happening at a physiological or biochemical level. So... Let me explain that a bit. Mm,
1: Yeah, thank
2: you. Um, So in an attachment relationship, when you need protection, so you're feeling stressed by you know, you're tired, you're hungry, you're frightened, that means your cortisol levels are going up. Mm -hmm. So you that's the stress hormone. So you feel the stress. In a secure or more or less secure relationship, you can go to your attachment figure, or you can even, as an adult, think about them. You don't need to physically have them there, but oh, you can have a, what we call a internal working model of mm. attachment, mm. and you can calm yourself. You can say, oh, I'm stressed. I had a terrible day. I nearly got run over, <laughs> you know, whatever. And you either call up your friend or you mm. you know hug someone or you think about that, and those high cortisols get brought down by that feeling of protection and care and your internal endogenous opioids in your body come up, which actually it's those that bring the cortisol's down. Mm. And those internal endogenous opioids are your comfort hormones. They make you feel safe. So now you feel comforted and safe. This is all good. You've kind of recovered from the stress. You don't want to stay with that. At a certain point, you're like, "Okay, I've had enough. Yep. Thank you. You've helped me. I now want to go back out into the world. <clears throat> Excuse me, into the world and do exciting things again and get my cortisols up, <laughs> but hopefully not too high." And it's this kind of balancing act, mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's a homeostatic system mm-hmm. that keeps the that excitement and the comfort in a kind of reliable, um, a reasonable balance. Sure, yeah. But in a disorganized attachment, the stress, and this is really important as relates to cults or any kind of abusive relationship for that matter, the stress isn't coming from outside or from your body, your own tiredness or hunger. It's coming from the attachment figure. Mm-hmm. So the attachment figure is actually frightening. Yeah. But they're also your attachment figure. So you're thinking they're going to look after you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, but they're the source of the stress. So in that relationship, you're getting frightened by that figure or that group, in the case of a cult. Your cortisols are going up. You're evolved, a normal response is to seek your attachment figure to get those nice opioids to calm you down. But it doesn't work in a frightening relationship because as you approach your attachment figure, you're approaching the fear, which is maladaptive. That's Mm. not a useful way for a human to respond.
0: Mm.
2: So... You, it kind of, in my view, that kind of, in a funny way, strengthens that bond because you never get enough. Mm. They may give you little drips of comfort, you know, a little, just enough mm. to keep yeah, you. no know, thinking that they're the attachment figure, right?
1: Mm. A
2: little pat on the head occasionally or something like that, but basically they're still frightening. So what happens is you keep trying to approach them for comfort now this only happens if you're isolated from any other comfort figure right if you had other comfort figures you could go to you could say this person's frightening me i'm going to go to auntie jean over here and she'll look after me but in these abusive relationships they isolate you from any other sources of comfort and that allows them to remain the sole attachment figure Mm -hmm. so you keep going trying to get some comfort which creates this positive feedback loop or this kind of emotional glue, Mm. gluing you in to this relationship. So you use them or you try to use that comfort figure, that attachment figure, as we talk about in attachment theory as a safe haven, but you're never able to use them as a secure base. And a secure base is the function of attachment where you're able to leave the attachment figure to explore your environment and be independent. Mm. But you can only do that if you've had enough comfort to be able to then say, thanks for he- your help. I'm off now yeah, to yeah. do other things. But the cult, obviously, or the abuse abuser doesn't want you to go off and do mm. that. Yeah. So I hope... <laughs> yeah, that's
1: great. I, I, think, um, I think that's really uh beautifully explained and and you use this phrase in in your book um which is fright without solution um which I think is another great sort of pithy uh way of explaining that so you've um so just so that I understand it you know you're you're in this situation where you're afraid um you you want your attachment figure but your attachment figure is the source of the fear, but they are your only attachment f- um figure so you and you don't have anybody else therefore you have this fright but you don't have any way of resolving that you don't have any way of um making sense of that of doing anything about that and then there's this other element that you talk about which is is to do with um part of the the way that the brain works um and this um frontal cortex element so could you um perhaps introduce that as to us as well
2: yes and that's of course very important for our purposes because it leads us into the brainwashing hmm. or indoctrination element. Yeah. First of all, fright without solution. I think it was Mary Main and those researchers that talked about that. Um, okay. Who who used that phrasing? And I think it's a really useful phrase because what it says is when you're in that positive feedback loop, glued onto the frightening figure, you're you're not able to escape this frightening situation and again we're evolved to try to fight or flee from fear right from stress so you can't do that you're trapped and so what you do when you have that situation is you freeze and you're just powerless and that's also an evolved response so for instance you know, they've done studies of a baby. Oh, I'm not going to quote this correctly. I've, I tend to forget details. But, you know, but the the concept is, you know, a baby left out in the wild will often just free stop crying because mm. that's the most, which is a kind of freeze response. Mm. Or let's put it this way. If they'll cry enough until there's no response. They see there's no mm. response. Mm. So the next best thing is to Stay not calm. Yeah, stay quiet because that's going to keep you safe. It's kind of a play dead thing.
1: Sure,
2: I think I've got that right. Apologies mm-hmm. to anyone listening in <laughs> who's horrified at that explanation. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the problem with being an interdisciplinary researcher. You know, you know a lot about about dif- a little about sure. a lot of different. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so you fr- <laughs> so it's a freeze response when yeah. you're in this right without solution. And what freezing is, is it's happening in the brain, which is you're basically dissociating. And because there's nothing you can usefully do to solve this problem. So it's sort of like a cannot compute moment or deer in the headlights. Hmm. And dissociation in trauma, and this is also, by the way, a trauma response, um, means you're... (laughs) Let let me back up. Uh, When your brain is functioning well, it's integrated. We have the left and the right lobes are talking to each other. You're also vertically integrated. When you're dissociating, that's not happening. And the way I see it, and I'm going to, again, this is very oversimplified, Mm -hmm. is that the frontal cortex which is our kind of logical language based part of the brain which is more associated with the left side of the brain doesn't in trauma doesn't speak to the more um, emotion based midbrain parts of the brain which are where you're processing your sensory input and then having emotional or feeling responses and that's more associated with the right side of the brain so those two things normally are talking to each other i'm feeling something and then i'm going to put words to it
0: mm.
2: i'm sitting in my room right now and it's starting to get slightly cool so i'm thinking maybe i should turn on the heat Mm. You know, that's a kind of, I'm I'm translating that sensory input into logical thinking, and I'm describing it to you. In dissociation, you can't do that. Mm. And studies by, well, Alan Shaw, his work is mostly what I've used with this, is that in trauma, the orbital frontal cortex, which is this little piece of the brain that sort of links those two. When, you, when people are in trauma, they've seen on these you know, wonderful image imaging things of the brain they can do now, that that's turning off. So, and it, that's also in the area of the brain that um, is, it's close to the language processing area, the Broca's region, and it's also close to the dorsolateral uh, cortex, I think it's called. And those two the orbital frontal cortex, the dorsolateral cortex, are involved with what we call judicious reasoning. You know, I'm feeling cold. Huh, I can think about that and turn on the heat. You know, I'm thinking sensibly, more Hmm. or less. Um, (laughs) And it's our ability, ability to, yeah, to logically think about and resolve a problem
1: so i think you talk about thinking about your feelings so it's like i guess um the way i i I understood it was um you know if you if you feel unhappy or if you feel happy or whatever it's it's the the fact that you can think about that feeling so i i can think about that i feel scared i can think about this looks a bit suspicious i can think about i don't like this i want to get out of it but your i think your point is that once that's um once that's once you're dissociated, then that stops. So you can't think about your feelings. You just feel them. Mm-hmm. But you can't think about them. Is that is that right? Is that what that's you
2: That's right, that's right. Yeah. So you're you're feeling well, let's I'll run you know, I'll go back to my own experience. Mm. You know, I'm feeling, you know, I was working 18 hours a day and you know, I'm exhausted. And I wasn't able to think well, why? What's going on? All I could do was keep putting one foot in front of the other yes. mm-hmm. because if I didn't, I was going to get in trouble. Mm. So I just sort of didn't think about it, mm. you know, as opposed to now if I'm working and feel stressed because I've not had enough sleep, I'll, you know, I can think about that and do something about it and, you know,
0: That's not right. work so hard. So it's not just like um, Sphinx and Homes. When people have said dissociation um, or talked about it in like more pop terms, I've just thought, oh, so it's just like what well, it means—overwhelmed when you're overstimulated. But it's not like you can't function or can't keep going. It's just your a, a way of keeping going, almost like so you're able yes. to keep going because you've sort of like you know parachuted out <laughs> mentally.
2: Yeah, you just block it out because you because the fear you can't look at it. Mm -hmm. so you know trauma creates the dissociation so you can't look but it's a relation it's the relationship the scary relationship Mm -hmm. creates the trauma creates the dissociation you can't solve it because to think about the scary relationship is frightening Mm -hmm. right so it's another, yeah. that's kind of like a negative feedback loop or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't even think about it because to think about it is too scary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
2: so you're just stuck in that. That's why it took me having this fr- this friend talking to me, breaking that isolation, giving me a way out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a practical way out. That we did do, but later it was a a mental way Mm. out, oh, I can use language, I can verbalize to this other person, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, this is awful what we're living. Mm -hmm. Whereas on my own, I was feeling that, Mm. but I couldn't bring it to my frontal cortex where I could use language to say this is awful because Mm. that was too frightening. And that's why – but as soon as I had someone who – I could trust, then I, I broke this the isolation and this f- spell of this frightening feedback loop. Yeah. That meant I couldn't think about it. But importantly, what I think is you're not globally dissociated. So, you know, I always use the example of, you know, the cult, Got, told me to become a computer person, and I mm. went and became one. I was obedient, you know. Mm. And I was perfectly skilled. I was highly skilled. You know, I could think very well at my computer job because, because cults don't want people who can't function, right? They
1: don't want zombies, do they?
2: Yeah, they need people they can exploit.
1: Mm.
2: So you can do all that. Your brain is working well in that sense the dissociation is in relation to the scary relationship yeah. to the scary group and that's a really important thing cuz you know people tend to think of people in cults as just yeah these helpless yeah zombies you know duh. but it's <laughs> but they're not they're functional mm. Productive I was about to say
0: very from. productive. are doing more. Like like you said, it's, it's a very common story of being busy, 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 like working mm. hours and hours. And yeah, you're. There's no time to think, even if you want. If you were in a place that you weren't dissociating anyway, because you're all so busy.
1: The What Should I Think About podcast has been going now since around November 2020, and we've really enjoyed doing it. We release at least two shows a week, it's about eight a month of course, with Sunday being an interview and Wednesday being our discussion about a new subject each week. We love you our listeners and we really value the interaction we have with you and we want to keep the podcast going. Currently I pretty much work on the podcast full time, researching topics, booking guests, recording and editing, with Celine working part time doing very much the same things. So in order for us to keep going and continue to improve, we've reached that point in the life of a podcast where we have to make some decisions about how we support it financially. Most podcasts have ads, either that are delivered by the podcast hosts or from third parties that interrupt the show. We really don't want to do that. We want to keep the What Should I Think About podcast ad-free. So we're going to try something different to most podcasts we'd like to ask you if you think this podcast is worth a pound or a dollar 50 or a euro 20 a month or whatever the equivalent is in your own currency if you think it's worth that we'd like to invite you to become a member or a patron for just that so how we're doing it is we're flattening out our tiers on patreon to just our single lowest tier For those patrons, not only will you get the two public podcasts a week but you'll also get exclusive video each month, bonus content of at least one a month and probably more and exclusive access to the What Should I Think About Facebook private group where you can contribute to our Ask Us Anything episodes coming up soon and talk about the show. We've got other plans too that will make your pound or $1.50 even better value. We can't say too much about that yet. We really want to make access to this community possible to everyone and we think this minimal amount will do that while providing the show with a small income in order for us to keep going. So the next few weeks we'll be flattening out our tiers on patreon and providing all benefits through the lowest tier currently known as loss aversion for just a pound or its equivalent in your own currency so please consider being part of our community thank you the link to our patreon page can be found in the show notes
2: well then the busyness is part of keeping you dissociated because first of all you don't sleep a lot Mm. second of all you don't have time to go and build relationships Mm. outside of the cult So you know and also yeah so that's all part of you know all these other things a lot of cults purposely do sleep deprivation or nutritional deprivation Mm -hmm. or sensory overload like the kind of hari krishnas chanting all the time all of those are helping that dissociation or the long you know i'm sure jehovah's witnesses you know, the constant studying, the boring studying that I hear people talk about, <laughs> and the boring services. You know, boredom is dissociating. Think about Absolutely. that. You know yeah. Mm-hmm. But back I think back it, as well. will, it builds on the relational. I think the primary dissociation is this mm. frightening relationship and then all mm. these other mechanisms build on that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So um I... I obviously i read your book some time ago and um I, I thought about it a lot and i suppose one of the things that I, I just couldn't kind of um resolve in my own thinking about my own experience as as a, a born in jehovah's witness and, and i found fa- i found this quite a lot of of in lots of books and and works on cults and so on is that as a born in um you're not, um, you're not the, the, recruitment phase, you know, that's forget that because you're already in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for Jehovah's Witnesses, if I'm honest, you know, if we think about charismatic leaders who are, um, setting up this, uh, this terror, um, attachment, uh, you know, uh, unpleasant relationship, um, through, you know, their charismatic, um, methods and um, I mean, the the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses are about as charismatic as a piece of coal, you know. (laughs) So I I just didn't say that. But then when I thought about it more, Alex, and, and, you know, this might be a bit controversial, you might disagree with this, but I thought actually what I was frightened of but also attracted to and also needed was the God that they'd created. So actually Jehovah is this figure of fear and attachment so on the one hand jehovah is the loving creator he loves us he's slow to anger abundant in loving kindness he's this wonderful figure that's going to um, create this paradise earth and everybody's going to be happy but on the other hand it's the god that will slaughter Men, women, and children, um, because they don't worship the right way, he'll he'll slaughter the whole Earth population. And soon to come is the great day of Armageddon, where he's going to kill eight billion people. Mm -hmm. So, and I was thinking about back to when I was a child praying to my God, Um, and absolutely, that's. So I I guess that's a bit controversial because I'm not really casting aspersions upon other people's gods and on God in general. But as far as I'm concerned, the God that was constructed by Jehovah's witnesses and is constructed is that figure. He's a narcissistic, unpredictable, terrifying figure that I was, yes, I was scared to death of sinning against the Holy spirit, which would mean me dying at Armageddon. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know what, whether you think that's a legitimate way of interpreting what you've, you've talked about but
2: it so this is interesting so i've i had to think a lot because well in my group you know there was this charismatic narcissistic
1: leader
2: i'd like to point out i never met this person i didn't know their name right um so you don't need a direct relationship first Mm. of all this but but that i i When I was studying, I thought a lot about groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Exclusive Brethren and other multi-generational groups because, as you said, they don't have this charismatic leader. They've got Mm. these rather drab, horrible (laughs) guys. And what I think happens is what we do know is these groups were started by an initial charismatic Mm. leader. I think the Mormons, it's the same story. And I think what happens over the generations is the, the way I look at it is that the, charis- the charisma, the, the terror and the love of that charismatic authoritarian leader, because not all charismatic leaders are, absolutely. Have, you know, some are okay, oh, like Nelson absolutely. Mandela, you know. Oh. Um, <laughs> but it's the ones who are also authoritarian. Anyway, they have the terror and love components. Oh. So, I think what happens in the multi generational cults, where there's this organizational, this very um, consolidated organizational structure with these governing bodies and so mm-hmm. forth, is that it gets sort of cons- those two elements get consolidated, in- instantiated in the organization and how the organization operates. And I think that happens in a number of ways. I think what you're talking about which, by the way, I've heard many Jehovah's Witnesses talk mm. about their childhood experiences of mm. terror of, mm. the, of the belief system. Mm. That's the ideology, right? Yep. I mean, you can call it God. I call it ideology. It's the belief system. Mm. The belief system is terrifying, and it also has this, but we're going to save you, and everything's going to be heavenly and beautiful. So it has the ideology has those two elements. But, it, but I think the ideology isn't the only thing. We also have the organizational, the structure, hmm. which is isolating.
1: Yes, oh, absolutely.
2: Right, and keeps you busy and the shunning and all of those things. Hmm. So I think it kind of becomes how the organization operates. But I want to say another thing about the ideology because there was a really interesting study done of ISIS by Charlie Winter. And part of my work has also been around radicalization and terrorism a little Mm -hmm. bit. And he did this really interesting study of their media. Well, he studies their media output. And he did a kind of quantitative study at one point of the images that they put out, and I went and looked. And it was fascinating because they were images that basically exactly what you just described, Images of the terrible things we know that ISIS does, Mm. you know, the beheadings and all the awful Mm. things and the guns and this and that. And then there were these marvellous images of the wonderful life and the, Mm. you know, fertile fields and the happy families.
1: Mm.
2: And, you know, North Korea does the same thing. Mm. You know, North Korea is a terrifying society, but... And there was terrible famine and hunger and at the same time they had these huge propaganda campaigns of round-cheeked you know rosy-cheeked well-fed people that you're not hungry it's all okay you know so you see in these kind of totalitarian systems this uh dichotomy of mm. you know that terror and love in the imagery in the propaganda in the words in the language But it always goes with isolation. Mm. So I think, you know, like North Korea, we know is a highly isolated Mm. society, right? Um, So there, that's that's yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. interesting. But I think more research is needed about Mm. those multi generational groups. I don't feel like I've got the last word on it. You know, it was something that I really, I think it's an open question and, and a very interesting one someone else to look at more. Yeah, no,
1: I I, I agree. I mean, it's something that I'm interested in. Um, and I mean, I suppose the other difficult question that I don't know, I don't, I'm not looking for you to kind of give the definitive answer, but um, I guess it's something that, um, you know, I've been thinking of more and more and listeners to the podcast will know that I bang on about this quite a bit. But um, um, I suppose as a born in, again, third generation, um, I uh, read, again, reading a lot of literature about, cults and some of the earlier work you know singers work and and so on Mm -hmm. um i feel that there's a has been a big emphasis on how how people get recruited Mm -hmm. and how and and there's a there's a narrative that is shared by stephen hassan and lots of the other writers that talk about this what the cult does is it overlays the cult self onto the authentic self Um, now when i'm reading that as a born-in that means nothing to me, um, and it I think it risks also um it risks us as bornins sort of feeling well, we don't have a self, you know and and when when we leave that sort of organization I left at about thirty um I mean of course, one of the first questions is, you know, who am I? <laughs> I don't even know who I am. But I'm not sure that telling people that you don't have a an authentic self because that was the cult self that that you. So I I feel like it's a bit oversimplified. Firstly, um, as a concept, because we know from my own studies about psychology that the self is complex and it's our understanding of our identity comes from lots of different places and it's complicated. It's got lots of facets to it and so on. Um, so I I don't know. I just I just feel that. Um, and that, again, is probably work that he's doing
2: mm-hmm. about
1: how do we understand ourselves and make sense of ourselves following leaving and uh, that sort of organization. And it's that being able to create a co- coherent self, past, present, and future, mm-hmm. that feels like a really important thing that probably hasn't been explored very much. I don't know what you think about, about that, Alex.
2: No, no I totally hear what you're saying and I again I've heard other you know second and multi-generational sure. people talk about this and I think it's a I mean just to say I'm really happy that this these second or third generation multi-generational mm. people are starting to tell their stories and study yeah. this stuff because we really need this their voices mm-hmm. your voices it's right. really yeah. really important and i and I think it's a really yes yeah, a development of our knowledge you know which started with, you know, people like Lifton and even yeah. before, um, went through my generation and now, anyway. I, and I think what you're saying is really interesting. I agree. I think it needs a lot of new thinking. You know, and I think for me, my, my colleague, my friend who came out of the cult with me, she described our experience as recruited members as when we were in the cult, it was like living with a tarpaulin over your head. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of had your little repressed self cowering underneath this tarpaulin. Yeah. Above which was the kind of propaganda version of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you got out, the tarpaulin sort of lifted, mm. and I, one could say my prior self. Yep. Was able to then come back with mm. new things, obviously. I wasn't mm. just the same. And I, so with, but, so I'm going to try something out because I've been trying to think about this as well because other people have been bringing this up with okay. me. So, thinking about that dissociation mm. and the fact that you can't think clearly about your feelings. And another way to think about that is that your experience you you can't give a coherent narrative about your experience when you're in a cult because your narrative has to be what the cult tells you is the narrative. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Right. yeah.
2: And it's this is what Hannah Arendt, who's one of my great heroes, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant woman, I think she talked about this split as the difference between it's the fiction that totalitarian systems create and I mean we see this in our government right now we saw this in Trump's government yeah this is what propaganda is is it's a fiction it's a fictional account of reality and in a cult you have that constantly about everything so when you come out you have to start trying to understand what is the reality so actually I am starving. I'm not rosy-cheeked and full. Mm. I'm hungry. And then you can put, or, or like when I do post-cult recovery with people, what I see the process as is reviewing their experience in the cult, which, when they were in it, was this narrative, the cult narrative, and now they get to use their own eyes and their own brain to go back and review. Oh, actually, when that happened, that was because, you know, when I was separated from my parents, that was when my parents were sent off to Korea to get more training mm. to make money for the cult, you know, yeah. and I was put into this horrible kind of orphanage, you know, or whatever it mm-hmm. is. So you're reviewing that whole experience with your own ability to think, if I dare use the word, rationally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm which just means what was the reality, What was actually going on? Because in a cult, you don't know what's actually going on. You don't know that there's a property empire being purchased by some people's labor sure. or whatever it is. You know? So I've been wondering if maybe a better way to talk about this, instead of talking about self, is to talk about reality versus fiction. And one's ability to autonomously review not just the cult experience, but your current life experience and make your own judgments about what's happening. Hmm. In other words, think about your feelings with your yeah. orbital cortex working happily rather than. So just. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps- got there in a way but I feel like that might be another way to approach
1: this rather than yeah. having self-issue I, I love I love the idea that we can perhaps uh, and there's nothing wrong with the heuristic that you described of you know um, if somebody experienced this tarpaulin over the top of their I, I I totally get that and that's that's a great heuristic if you're in that situation and you know, how do I make sense of, of um, coming out of this thing? Well, I've, you know, it's this. It's like this. So that's brilliant. But um, it's great if we've got, I suppose, the more um, people that talk about this who've been born in, perhaps the more we can move the conversation forward a little bit and say, well, you know, that's that's not really good enough for – it might work for uh, those who've been recruited, but for those that haven't, we we need a different way of thinking about this. So maybe – it is reality, I suppose we might bump up against, um, constructionism and, um, and uh, working out, you know, what is reality, I guess, but. I'm uh,
2: happy to have that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm totally, I mean, really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna interrupt you because this makes me mad, (laughs) 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 you know, because I feel that And I'm going to lay this at the feet of the postmodernists. You Mm -hmm. studied at Birkbeck. You got tormented by (laughs) postmodernists, as I did at the University of Minnesota. And I'm very concerned about this because I think this idea that everything, I mean, yes, things, we exist in society. Yes, things are socially constructed. Yes, yes, yes. But we can understand that. And Mm -hmm. we can understand. We can understand what is real, and I think that's been taken away by a lot of modern philosophy, and it really worries me. And the example I like to use of this is that, you know, if I was there, and I wouldn't do this to you, Stephen, but I'm going to use you as a process, (laughs) and and I punched you on the nose, You know, postmodernism and social constructionism would have all kinds of things to say about, you know, well, what was really going on there. Mm. What I'm going to say is my knuckles might hurt and your nose is going to hurt. And, you know, it's Alex's, you can quote me, it's Alex's punch to the nose theory. Um, And I developed it when I met a famous sociologist at at an event when I was a graduate student when i talked about cults said oh you know that kind of trope of you know well one man's cult is another man's religion mm-hmm. and i did the punch to the nose to him thing didn't actually punch his nose but i frightened him um, <laughs> because no that is not true a cult there are these oppressive power relationships that we can name this is not just whose point of view mm-hmm. and Children get hurt, people die, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And I I get angry and you know, passionate about it because I think this has prevented us thinking about the real world. The real world is real, climate change is real. It's not just a matter of hmm. your place in society. And I and it's and I think that's a starting point, is that there is reality. We can't, none of us are clever enough to understand all of reality, but we can understand our own reality. And if someone's being horrible to us, we can grasp that, Mm. especially if we're not isolated. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do need other people to bounce out, to validate our experience. So, you know, once the second and third generation and the first generation start sharing mm-hmm. their experiences about mm-hmm. what happened, and they go, yeah, that's right. That is what happened. Mm-hmm. I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. There were all these pedophiles. Mm-hmm. I was sexually abused. I mean, I, well, well, that's a different story. But, you know, it's when people are isolated and can't tell their stories and have that validated. Then they don't know what reality is. Hmm. So I'm big on reality, and that there is one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that, that's that. That, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: But I think I think um, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a, a further sort of conversation about mm-hmm. um, about the, the question of yeah, is it, it maybe that is the um, the way to, to think about it. I have tended to yeah. I've tended to think about. Um, being able to create a, a coherent narrative about who I am. So um, mm-hmm. uh, for my master's, I did a little sample. It was a, it was a qualitative study, but I talked to ex-Jehovah's Witnesses who'd been left about 10 years or more. and And what they'd managed to do is they'd managed to incorporate who they were with who they are. Okay, I have changed, but there is the real person there that I can hold on to and, and I, I just feel that's really important. And yeah, of course, tying that with reality too, but um, that, that well, I was... I think it's
0: like what you're saying with there being, you know, being able to talk about your emotions though. So, you know, mm. being able to then say, I liked that then and I like that now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe that's yeah. part of it. It's like, you know, pulling some of your threads together there with, with what you've just said.
2: When when I do the post cult recovery counselling, one of the things I've come to just sort of intuitively with second and multi-generational folks, is to think about temperament. Was it Kagan who did the Oh there's a famous book about temperament. Mm-hmm. Um and you know that there's been there was a study done some time ago where they're saying that babies are born with I think it's nine traits. That are inborn, that are out. That is our temperament, as opposed mm. to our personality, okay. that maybe is more socially developed mm. and our attachments and all that. So they can see from very young, you know, I think a few weeks old or something, you know, is a baby introverted or extroverted? You know, do they shy away from stimulus or are they excited by stimulus?
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, are they oh, are they slow to warm up, or are they quick? Um, mm. do they, there, there's a whole bunch of them, mm. and I can not mm. remember them offhand. But I, i I think that can be another element for people. Mm. born in, is to learn about that, look at w- what works for them, because that is our, that's our bodies again. Mm. And yeah. I'm big on the body as an important part of who we are, obviously. Mm. That sounds silly, but, you know, it gets forgotten sometimes.
1: Mm.
2: So, And also just what you just said, to look back at things they've liked and not like doing and mm. s- just lists of that. So, you know, when I was in the cult, they used to use as a stick to beat me with that I was, you know, a petty bourgeois intellectual. You know, that was terrible. <laughs> I was always being intellectual. Well, guess what? You know, I am kind of intellectual. And I don't think that's only my social environment. I think that's a bit of a temperament thing. Mm-hmm. I think I like just that's, I like to, my brain likes to work on problems and try to sort them out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, my, my daughter is more visually, you know, artistic. That's, you know, these are mm. kind of innate characteristics. So... You know, when I got out, and I think the same would be for people who are born or raised, and, is to, you know, try to figure out those characteristics that are you, and mm-hmm. even if they've been put down in the cult. And then the, the other thing is to do what I call toe dipping, mm-hmm. which is dip your toe in a bunch of different things. Explore. You know, try a class in sculpture. Try you know, doing some writing, try singing in a group, you know, know that you can stop at any time. You don't have to finish the course if you're not liking it. Give yourself a lot of permission to quit Mm. and work out what things you keep coming back to. Yeah. You know, so for me, I kept coming back to writing and teaching. Mm. You know, it took a while. You know, I didn't leap out of the cult knowing that, but, and then I go, yeah, that totally fits kind of who I am. It's not all. I have other attributes.
1: <laughs> sure. I must admit, I, I've tended not to think so much of innate um, kind of characteristics. And um, I suppose, you know, again, from the psychological training, thinking about the big five characteristics and, and all of that, you sort of think about personality. Yes, of course, it has genetic elements to it. Um, but um, you tend to think of it as something that develops over over your life but yes absolutely you're right aren't you that we have these innate characteristics um i can think about things that i was like when i was a child um and i am still like that so yeah i think that's that's really that's a great bit of self-discovery mm-hmm. yeah okay that's that's really good yeah, that's um we're, we're oh, i'd just love to talk to you forever to be honest um there's mm-hmm. just so much that i haven't we haven't got round to mm-hmm. uh to talking about I, I guess um perhaps um it I don't know whether you've got anything more to ask, um, Celine.
0: Well, I, I did have one question, uh, just, just to, cause I remembered we, we talked about this on the podcast before, yeah. um, and basically just to see what you think in terms of, so we're talking about all these, um, sort of psychological things that are going on, um, in the brain when you're in these, uh, situations or like high control groups, courts or you know, toxic relationships, even, um, do you think, that the people, like the architects of these cults or the charismatic leaders, they are aware and purposefully exploiting these things or are they almost cult member number one and they truly believe what they're doing and then, you know, they feed it into you or what do you think of that?
2: Um, first of all, I don't think we exactly know because we can't really look into their brains very easily yeah. and, they, and they lie, so you can't mm-hmm. trust mm-hmm. what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so that's also a key component of yes.
0: yeah,
2: yeah, deception, mm. which goes back to the fiction stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think we know, but I, we do have some evidence that some of them clearly do know, though. So, for instance, um... L. Ron Hubbard. I was thinking of anthropology. I think there's a lot of evidence that he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Yanya yeah. uh, Lalich. I think you've had her on.
1: Indeed, friend yeah. of the podcast. Yeah. yeah, good
2: good colleague of mine, mm. wonderful. She's made a fantastic mm. contribution to our field. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her cult leader had studied Lifton's work. She was a sociology professor and she had studied Lifton. Mm-hmm. Um, the cult so she knew what it took to brainwash people. Okay. The, um, Fred Newman, who was the leader of the cult I studied for my PhD, mm-hmm. which is a different political cult than mine, he talked about just some of his writings talk about brainwashing like as if it's to other people, not to his cult members, but he clearly knew, again, something about what that was. So I think some clearly know... I think most come to it, so to speak, intuitively because they've grown up. Well, they've all grown up in and have themselves disorganized attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, cult leaders don't come from happy families, mm-hmm. um, so they've grown up in, I, I, I believe, frightening themselves, frightening situations, mm-hmm. and this is their response to try to control their environment. In in adulthood mm-hmm. and they and then i think there's some trial and error probably you know they figure out you know oh this worked let's do this mm-hmm. some more of it. Right. um so i think there's a yeah i think mm-hmm. it happens in different ways but mm-hmm. but they all come from unhappy frightening backgrounds i believe mm-hmm. where i think that's the primary way they come to it
0: yeah. like that phrase yeah. hurt people hurt people yeah, I mean,
2: you know, I've learned about brainwashing. I come from a complicated background, you know, don't we all, but mm-hmm. um, I don't need to do it psychologically. I'm not, no. you know, don't want to control other people. So mm-hmm. even though I, I could if I wanted to, that's not what works for me. But if mm-hmm. I came from, had some different psychology, I could use what I know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose the 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 last question then that I'd like to ask because uh, we've kept you uh, long enough and it's getting a bit chilly now. I can (laughs) see you put your coat on, and it is even even here it's getting chilly. Um, So um, I suppose the last thing then to to think about is um, helping people to get out of these organizations recover and so on um it's always difficult isn't it because when you get involved in something you suddenly notice it a lot more Mm -hmm. but it feels like i don't you perhaps know better because you've been involved for longer than i have but um it feels like there is more awareness and more people are saying i've had enough of this it seems like more jehovah's witnesses leaving Mm -hmm. seems like more mormons talking about their their experiences and I don't know whether that's true, but how do we help what could end up being a bit of a flood of people coming out of these groups who I guess themselves might be a bit vulnerable now because they've had all the answers given to them for so long um, and they're now out in the big wide world and um, you know, also vulnerable to other predatory people. Uh, it's a big question. I don't expect you to, to answer it all, but I, I don't know whether you've... Had any thoughts about that i'm sure you have
2: well i think it's it is a big question and it's one that i face daily because a lot of people contact me you know mm. as soon as you start being in this field and you're right there is a flood of people coming out and there is a and there's a flood of media you know it, the field has really changed since you know when i first got uh, got out um then the media is not all helpful because a lot of it's very sensational and not educational. Mm. Um, I think what we call psychoeducation is incredibly important, learning about how cults operate because then you can, as you said, start building a coherent narrative of what Mm. happened to you, Mm. why these things happened. Um, But I think, you know, the stage we're at is... (laughs) There's very, this hasn't, even though there's a lot of media and there's a lot of people coming out, it hasn't come into our institutions yet. We're not teaching about this at universities. I mean, very rare. I mean, I taught, uh, actually, I wasn't allowed to teach at British universities. I was at University of Minnesota, but here I begged the universities I worked with to let me teach it. I finally got to teach it at an adult education centre, which was wonderful. But my point being, there's very little of this being taught to any professionals. uh, Very few therapists understand how to do therapy with this population. Um, So people tend to have horror experiences uh, when they come out of cults and go to a therapist who does more harm than good if they're not trained in this. And, I mean, the wonderful Julie Jenkinson is doing really great work training therapists and there's some others also doing that, but it's, you know, we we the resources available are in very short supply. Mm. Um, you know, I work, as I said, with the Family Survival Trust. We have we do now an online support group, but you know, we're a tiny, un, basically unfunded charity. You know, oh. if anyone wants to help, please go to Just Giving and fund us. <laughs> you know. Um, so we are kind of operating on a shoestring or half a shoestring to run the support group. It's not enough. We can't have everyone in it. There needs to be loads of support groups. Sure. Um we need so we need trained therapists, we need trained teachers, doctors, you know, we mm. and I do strongly believe this will happen eventually because there's so many of us starting to talk about this mm. and studying it as well. Yeah. But we've got a long way to go. Sure.
1: Um,
2: I think things like your podcast and the other things that are luckily people can now find on the mm. internet are hugely valuable. Um, you know, and what I would say. You know, I talk about in my book, I think that there's two kinds of support that are really important. One is to talk to other people from your same group, ex-members I'm Mm -hmm. talking about, because that helps you build a picture of what that group was really about Mm -hmm. and cuts through some of that fiction Mm -hmm. of what the group said it was about. But I tend to find that if people only talk to people, ex-members from their own group, that can then generate its own Mm. problems. Mm. Um, And it's just an incomplete understanding. So I think it's also very helpful to talk to people from different kinds of cults or abusive Mm. groups because what you really get then is the sense, oh, it wasn't just the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, you mean that happened in this crazy Marxist group or the exclusive brethren? Mm. And it's sort of depersonalizes it from your group and you start to see these universal patterns and it's very helpful so if, and you don't necessarily have to do it by being in a support group you can do it by reading other people's accounts all these wonderful memoirs that have been coming out i think those are really helpful some of the um uh, uh documentaries the better ones there are not the sensational ones But, you know, it's very hard for people coming out. They need a lot of resources and they don't have them. You know, where are the social workers who understand Mm -hmm. these problems? Um, So we have to keep doing this work. And perhaps I can segue from this into my little activist speech because I'm still an activist at heart, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is... You know, this is a, well, there's a, politi- this is a political problem. You know, a big cult is really a totalitarian state, you know, like, and we have to educate people and we have to provide resources, but that's only going to happen if somehow we form, it can be loose, a loose network. Or what I dare I even call it a movement of people all saying, We've got to do something about this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about hashtag me too, mm-hmm. you know, that was a sort of I mean that was a particular kind of a movement. There are most movements are much slower, you know, but the women's movement getting attention to battered women, you know, all kinds of this, you know, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. whatever it is. We need to bring attention to this in a political way. So for instance, the Family Survival Trust is trying in our small charity way to say that coercive control law that now exists in well, it's part of the Serious Crime Act, the element of that around coercive control really describes what happens in cults, but it is limited to coercive control in intimate or family relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's very limited to that. Mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. we read the guidelines for that, what qualifies as coercive control, we go, hey, that happened to me. I I recognize that. Hmm. So we would like to see that either a new law created or that Mm -hmm. law amended to also cover groups. Because as we know, these groups get away with murder.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and there's no law that specifically says you may not coercively control people within a group mm-hmm. that is illegal we need that so that's my little plea for i think
1: a, that's a great yeah that's a great rallying cry and i think um certainly that's something that we well mm-hmm. i personally would support um i guess Celine too and uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll sort of bang the drum on that um we'll um we'll put any um links to to the family survival trust or anything else um on our show notes um alex and um yeah any any sort of uh stuff like that you want us to publicize in our small way we will definitely do that um i guess from a personal perspective i'm um I, i'm kind of in a situation where i would like to do more and i'm thinking about how i do that so I have thought about research and and things like that or whether it's um i don't know to help in teaching and training. I am actually a trainer by trade, so you know anyway that's perhaps something for for another time but um certainly i guess there's a there's a need to to get people involved and um yeah maybe there is the start of a movement there that needs to uh that needs to start challenging some of these powerful institutions who often try to stop some of this work because they're afraid of where it will lead so i think that's yeah. probably where a lot of the, the mm-hmm. issues arise
2: yeah. well i'd be happy to talk more about any of these mm-hmm. things you cool. know I think it's a yeah. discussion
1: um yeah yeah so, brilliant so. okay well um uh, i suppose all remains for me to say um is thank you so much for giving us your time today it's been just so interesting and um, mm-hmm. thank you for allowing me to kind of pose my questions to you just sort of without any preparation and just, um, yeah, thinking about this stuff is so, uh, so great. And I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much.
2: Well, likewise, I've really enjoyed it and you know, it's great work you're doing. So thank you as well. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much.
0: What should I think about is an evil sheep production.